as a result of what the servant did and is doing, we will forever, ever, ever be a part of his kingdom. Don't doubt. Don't lose your faith. Don't trip. You're part of an everlasting kingdom. And though we do not see it, we know, we know by faith Jesus is king and we'll be a part of his kingdom forever. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Here our guest, we're, we're studying through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah divides into two parts, chapters 1 to 39 and then 40 to 66. We studied 1 to 39 a couple of years ago. And we've come back to finish it, the second part that begins in chapter 40. And, uh, and uh, we're at chapter uh, 52, 13. Uh, this morning, and it's probably one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. It's famous for a number of reasons, because of the character it depicts, because of the content that it shares, and then also because of the clarity with which it points to one person in history. So turn to your Bibles. If you have your Bible, please turn to Isaiah 52, verse 13. Chapter divisions in the Bible were not there when the original prophets wrote it or the different, different folks wrote down the different books of the Bible. The chapter and verse divisions that we see in the text, they were created by a fellow by the name of Stephen Langdon, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the year 1227 uh, A.D., and unfortunately, he got the break between Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, or how he divided it. He got the break wrong. He broke it at Isaiah 53, 1. He should have broken it at uh, Isaiah 52, verse 12, because Isaiah 52, 12 through the end of 53 is all one, is all one thought. And uh, it's uh, where Isaiah begins to speak about the servant now, if you've been in our study from the beginning, you know that we've introduced the servant uh, to ourselves. In fact, the servant is the main character in the chapters that we're presently looking at. And this is the final passage on the servant in Isaiah. There uh, is no doubt that in the references to the servant that we've seen, that at some places, Israel the nation is the servant that Isaiah is uh, referring to. However, if we're honest, we'd have to say that Israel really wasn't a great servant all along with regard to God. They didn't serve God exactly as, as they ought to. But as we've seen, as we've gone through the text, we've noticed that there is another servant who's coming, and this servant is going to rescue Israel, the servant. In Isaiah 49.6, again, we studied this a couple of weeks ago, it says of the servant, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations uh, to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. In other words, the servant was not only going to impact Israel, but the servant was going to impact all the nations uh, of the earth. We read a couple of times where the servant would himself be the covenant that God makes with all the people. Remember the coast and the islands, which we said is a reference to the Gentile nations around the world. 
So it seems only logical, doesn't it, if, if you're following this train of thought? It seems only logical, and if you're aware of these Old Testament truths, that the promised Messiah, the promised anointed king, would be this, would be this um, special servant that God was going to, uh, to send. And in fact, many, many Jewish writings of antiquity say that the Messiah is going to, that the servant in Isaiah 40 to 66, in, in those references that obviously don't apply to Israel, the nation, that the servant is the Messiah. But let's be honest, no Jew of the past, no Jew of the present is ever going to believe that Isaiah 52.12 through, through Isaiah, excuse me, 52.13 through 53.12 is, is about the Messiah. Because in their minds, both of the past and in the present, the Jews thought that Messiah was going to be this conquering, reigning, anointed king, right? And uh, so what we find in the chapter that we're going to look at this morning in, in a couple of extra verses, we'll see the depiction of the servant as one who suffers. We'll see him as one who is a sacrifice. We'll see him as one who is a substitute. And they would never have thought that that was uh, about the Messiah, so the Jews have always looked at the chapter that we're going to look at this morning as, as being fulfilled in Israel, that Israel is the servant that God is talking about in these verses. Uh, the problem with that is that there is in, in really no way of making Israel fit, the nation Israel fit, what we're going to read uh, this morning. However, there is a man in history who I believe and who most of you believe uh, fits Isaiah's description rather perfectly. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And one thing I want to remind us of that you, you may not know or you may have forgotten is that Isaiah is writing, and I, I meant to look it up, but it's either 600, 700, or 800 years before Jesus ever comes on the scene. I can't remember when Isaiah lived. But he's writing literally hundreds, centuries before Jesus ever comes on the scene. And yet what we're going to read is such a perfect description of the Lord Jesus. So what I want to do this morning is I want to work our way through the text. I have read many notes, but I, I believe it's going to go rather quickly since I'm going to be reading a, a number of things. And uh, if you have your outline, there's an outline on the back of your bulletin just to help you listen if you want to fill in the blanks. They'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through this text and I'm going to show us what Isaiah says about the servant. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to show us how Jesus is the fulfillment, or at least how Jesus pictures the things that God says that he's going to, um, that he's going to bring about in the servant. You with me? Let's pray. I want to pray this morning. Father, would you just take this good news presentation of the Old Testament that points us to Jesus, and God, would you point me to Jesus? Would you point all of us this morning to Jesus? And at the end of our gathering today, Spirit of God, would you fall fresh on us? Would you cause us to be convicted of our sin because of the great love of Jesus? Would you cause us, Lord, to want to be, as we sang this morning, as Michael so aptly said, be holy, Lord. We, we, we don't, we fall so short of that, but we want to be. Would you work in our hearts that our resolve is to walk away this morning wanting to be holy, wanting to be separate, wanting to be like the Lord Jesus? Would you just help us see your love, feel your love, experience your love as we read about, uh, about Jesus? And uh, so we're just asking you, Spirit, Spirit, you said, or Jesus said of you, that you would point us to him 
And so, Spirit, I'm asking you to do that this morning. Point us to Jesus, our Savior, our King, our Messiah. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's dive in. First, he says of the servant, God's servant would be successful. Verse 13, I'm in chapter 52. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Whoever the servant is going to be, uh, Isaiah tells us that he is going to succeed at what he's commissioned to do. And not only is he going to succeed at it, but that he is going to be lifted up. And Jesus fits this description. First of all, the first verse that came to mind that talks about Jesus being successful. And these are, this is just Jimmy and the Spirit working through me as I'm sitting at my desk. I'm assuming he's working through me. But this verse came to mind, Colossians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive with him and forgave us all, all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And he, that is Jesus or God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in Jesus. So Jesus succeeded at what God called him to do. He triumphed over the powers and principalities of his day. And here's, here's something that I thought of also. You remember how often Jesus said, I have done the will of my father. I have, all I've done is what I've seen the father do. He was constantly saying, I've done what the Father has done. When Isaiah prophesied that he would be raised and lifted up, I thought about this. Man, Jesus was raised and lifted up in the resurrection. First of all, he's raised and lifted up on the, on the cross, but then he was raised and lifted up in resurrection. I do not think that's what Isaiah means, right? But I thought, what a neat thing, right? Jesus was indeed raised and lifted up from the dead. But what Isaiah is talking about is that he will be high and lifted up, exalted. He, he even says he'll be great greatly exalted, right? So what verse comes to mind? I mean, if you've been following Jesus for a while, a verse probably came to mind. The verse from Philippians, the letter Paul wrote to that church. He says, for this reason, God highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or how about Peter's message at Pentecost? Here's what he said in Acts chapter 2. God has raised this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He has poured out, uh, poured out what you both see and hear. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both the Lord, both the Lord and the Messiah. So God's servant would be high and lifted up. And Jesus is indeed both of those things, successful and lifted up. Uh, number two, and I'll, I'll probably go lose the order, so you just kind of hopefully keep along with your, with your notes. But God's servant would be disfigured, verse 14. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. From his success, the prophet now takes us to the people. And he says the people were appalled at what the servant would look like. Appalled means to be shocked or stunned. They were stunned by the disfigurement of the servant. He didn't even look like a man. And it seems pretty clear to me that this is talking about Jesus and, and is leading to the resurrection. Here's what Matthew records about Jesus' experience on the cross. 
Matthew 27 says they stripped Jesus and put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. But they put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. They struck Jesus on the head again and again, uh, you know, with a staff. I I think we missed that. They took a wooden stick and they kept hitting Jesus in the head over and over and over again. I guarantee you when they were finished, he was blue and purple and and swollen. My grandmother fell down and hit her her face, hit her head. Well, some of y'all remember my grandma. She was with us for a while. But when she fell, her face became so disfigured with purple and blue colors and swollenness. And, and, and so they, they say of the servant, Isaiah says of the servant, he would be so disfigured that we would be appalled, we'd be shocked by what we saw. And I wondered, I'm wondering out loud, and, and again, this is just me wondering, right? I wonder when they brought Jesus out and they took him up to Golgotha and his disciples, John, Mary, his mother, and others, I wonder if they were shocked by what they saw and how Jesus had been beaten in the face with a stick. Mm. God's servant would impact the world. He would do that in two ways. First, it says he would cleanse the world. So he will sprinkle many nations. Now, sprinkling in the Old Testament is associated with cleansing from sin. Ezekiel 36, 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be cleansed from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Now, here's the promise of the work of the servant. He would cleanse many nations. The servant was certainly going to clean Israel, right? But he would, he would clean, he says, he would be cleansing, he would sprinkle many nations. So he was cleansing many nations. Here's what, here's what the New Testament says about Jesus. 1 John 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, he will, we will have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, finish it, cleanses us from all sin. Hebrews 9, 14, the blood of Jesus, who had no defect, does even more. Through the eternal spirit, he offered himself to God and cleansed our consciences from the useless things we had done. So now we can serve the living God. He cleansed our consciousness. The the servant will cleanse us. Jesus cleansed us. Here's here's how the servant will impact the world as well. He'll clean the world, but he's also going to do something else. He's going to astonish rulers. The the kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they will see what they had not been told them. And they will understand what they had not heard. He says, even kings who have not seen or heard about the servant. He said, their mouths will be shut. These same kings, their mouths will be shut. What does that mean? Their mouths will be shut. I I think at least it means they will not speak against him. But to me, it's, it's the idea, it's the idea that their mouths will be shut in, in awe. They, they won't be able to speak at what they understand this, this Messiah, this servant has done, right? They, they will be awed by that. And, and Paul picks up on this idea. So here's what he writes to the church at Rome. He says, it has always been my ambition, end of, end of Romans chapter 15, it's always been my ambition to preach the good news where Messiah was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation, rather, as it's written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand when I'm sitting at my desk this week and I'm reading this 
and I've written that down, immediately this poem came to mind. It's a poem that many of you probably are going to be familiar with. Um, I've probably read it numerous times over the years, but I want to read it again for you this morning because I think it captures this idea that the king's mouths will be shut, all right? It's, It's by James Allen Francis, and it's called One Solitary Life. Here's how it goes. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, never held an office, never had a family or owned a home, didn't go to college. He he never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of those things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled uh, for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. And then this concluding paragraph, 20 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, and here was, I guess this is why this came to mind, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. Here's my point. Kings, kings have worshiped Jesus throughout the ages and their mouths have been shut in praise and adoration of the Lord Jesus. Not every king, but many have. All right, let's go on. Chapter 53, it seems like Isaiah, and I guess this is why the archbishop you know, broke it here. It seems like Isaiah asked a rhetorical question in the middle of all of this. And, and the rhetorical question of verse one is this, who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You know, and and I think Isaiah is looking back on the last three verses and he's looking forward to the rest of the chapter of Isaiah 53. I guess the, the, the archbishop is looking all the way back to the beginning of all the stuff that we've been talking about, right? And that's why he broke it there, right? But, but, but Isaiah is asking this question, who's going to believe what I'm writing? To whom will this be revealed? To who will understand what I'm writing right now? Now, obviously, in Jesus' time, very few believed. Very few people believed. But, but Jesus himself said, this is how it's going to be. He said it's going to be like, this, like a seed, a mustard seed, which is a very, very small seed they knew. He says it's going to be like the mustard seed, which then actually grew into a pretty hefty bush or tree. He said, listen, my kingdom's going to be like that. It's going to start very, very, very small. But then it's going to grow, and it's going to become a great big tree. So yes, maybe a lot of people didn't believe at first, but let me tell you, lots of people have believed ever since. Billions of people have believed ever since. And and just like one solitary life, Jesus' one solitary life changed the world. Billions today believe the message of Isaiah. So let's go back to the servant. What do we learn about him? God's servant would grow up ordinary, verse two. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. The servant would grow up, it says, first of all, like, like, a, like a tender plant. And young plants are tender and they're vulnerable. And I think it's trying to talk about the fact that the servant would grow up like a helpless baby. 
Even though he would be an ordinary person, he, he would not be extraordinary in his, in his appearance and all of that, right? He was extraordinarily conceived. We believe God became one of us. Just like you're sitting there as a human being, God became one of us, took on our humanity, right? And, and so, but he, he grew up like a, ten, he was vulnerable, like a tender plant. He was vulnerable. But, but then it goes on to say that he would not, he would, what does it say? He would not have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him or his appearance that we should desire him. Here's what it's saying. He wasn't particularly handsome, all right? He wasn't impressive in, st- in size. The people wouldn't be drawn to him because, wow, he, here's the model, right? He wasn't a model. He wasn't this super big, muscular guy that everybody would be kind of be drawn to him. His, his, his appearance was just, he was an average Joe. And if any of you are named Joe, I mean, no offense out there, right? He was just an average Joe. He was just average, okay? We, we don't know what Jesus, listen, Saul, remember when Saul was chosen as king? Two things about Saul that it says, remember? One of them was he was extremely handsome, and the other one was that he was really tall, right? He was, I mean, he had something that people would be just drawn to him physically, well, that's not true of Jesus. You know, we don't, we don't, there's not a comment about what Jesus looked like. And why is that? I think, it, I think it's because Jesus was ordinary. He's just common like the rest of us. He looked like, let's look like all of us. Next, God's servant would be rejected. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what grief was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Isaiah began by telling us that the servant would be exalted and lifted up. I mean, he'd be high and raised up, right? He would be extremely or greatly exalted, it says. But here now he tells us that when it came to people, people would reject him. They would not value him. They would even despise him. And it seems like, and see if you don't agree, but it seems like the men and women that God has chosen over the generations, right, they usually don't fare all that well with society around them. They're so often murdered and killed by the cultures and the people around them. Uh, the, prophets of, of the prophets of old, Jesus said of the Jews, you killed all the prophets. You killed all the prophets. And Isaiah, the guy who's writing this, I mean, he would be killed, according to tradition and history, he would be killed by being sawn in half. I was thinking of all the ways to die to be laid out on a table and somebody to take a saw and saw me in half while I'm alive, that's a, that's a terrible way to die, right? They murdered, they murdered Isaiah. They murdered Jeremiah by stoning him. They murdered all the prophets. Jesus wasn't rejected by all the Jews. The Jews, the Jews that had, who loved God, who belonged to God by faith, they recognized Jesus. But the hardened Jews who had rejected God, they scorned Jesus. They despised him, and they eventually killed him. And in the middle of this description, it says that the servant was a man of suffering who knew what grief was. I kind of like the NASB where it says he was a man of sorrows acquainted with, with grief. Now, we're not told what the sorrows of the servant would be or, or why he would grieve. We'll say something in a minute that could dovetail with this. But what if the context is telling us why he was a man of sorrows or why he grieved, right? Assuming that Jesus is the servant, his sorrow may have been over the rejection that he experienced as the servant. And in fact, if you go back and look at the verses that we're looking at, he, uh, it says he was a man acquainted with grief 
and suffered. He was like someone who people turned away and despised was the way they didn't value him. So maybe his grief and his sorrow was over their rejection of him. And if we go to the New Testament, we find that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He was rejected. He was despised. He was not valued, even by his own people. So John, uh, John the apostle writes, he was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He, he came to his own and his own people did not, uh, did not receive him. Or how about at the end of his ministry, the end of three years, he comes into Jerusalem on, on, um, on the Holy Week, Passover week. He comes in, you remember this? And he goes into the temple and he weeps and he says this, how often I wanted just to, I wanted to bring you to my arms. I wanted to bring you close, but you wouldn't. You wouldn't have anything to do with that. And, and he weeps, and he weeps. Maybe, maybe he's acquainted with sorrows and grief because he experienced the rejection of, his, of, the, of the nation that he had chosen and he experienced the rejection of, of so many. God's servant would suffer. As we begin to look at these next verses, um, well, here's something I'd li- really like you to note as we begin to read these next three or four verses. Uh, he's going to suffer, but here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice how many times Isaiah uses our, we, or us. Our griefs, our sorrows, we, es- we esteemed him. Our transgressions, our iniquities. His chastisement brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. We all have gone astray. We have turned. The iniquity of us all. Nothing in this passage is going to make sense to us until you feel the weight of this truth. What he did, he did for all of us. And what he did, he did you know, this morning we were praying, and we were praying this, that, that he, he did this for all of us. And I was hit in the moment with this thought, yes, and I'm, I'm the us. What he did, he did for Jimmy. What he did, he did for George. What he did, he did for Stephen. He did for all of us individually, right? But, but don't miss this. He suffered for us. He died for us. The pain, the brutality, the death, the indignity of the cross, it was for all of us. And here's what it says. It says he would suffer. First of all, he would suffer our pain. Surely, verse four, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Surely our griefs he himself bore. The servant, so this is where I said it dovetails with what was said earlier. He was a man acquainted with griefs. Maybe it wasn't the rejection of his people. Maybe the griefs that he bore, the pain that he bore, the sorrow that he bore was ours. You know, the Hebrew word for bore there means to lift up a heavy load and carry it away. And it's the same word that's used as the scapegoat in Leviticus 16, where he, the scapegoat would bear our sins. And the scapegoat, if you, again, this is Jewish, Jewish ceremonial law. Some of you may not know this, but they would take a, a goat and the high priest would put his hand on the goat's head and say, you're now the bearer of all of our sins. And they would send that goat out of the city to just go away, right? And, and that was picturing the... God taking away our sins or the goat walking away with all of our sins, right? So maybe, you know, that's the same word here. He carried our, he carried away our sorrow and our pain. Jesus may, maybe it's Jesus saying, or or the servant would say, he lifted 
the burden of our sadness, of our brokenness caused by our sin, the pain of living in a sinful, broken world, and, and he carries it for us. He carries it away for us, even if you would. Remember the hymn? What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear, right? We, uh, we have many griefs because we live in a broken world and Jesus carries our griefs and our sorrows. The greatest grief of my life and the greatest sorrow of my life was when Shep died. Jesus bore my sorrow as only he could. Isaiah tells us that his contemporaries thought that God was doing this to the servant because it's what the servant deserved, right? They were, they were punished, God was punishing him for what he deserved. They were wrong, they were wrong. He suffered, he suffered our pain, but then he suffered our punishment in verse five. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. They thought God was punishing the servant for what he had done. They were wrong. His punishment the punishment that fell on the servant was my punishment. It was my chastisement. He was bearing it for me. Osgeny tells uh, this story in his book, No God But God. This is what Osgeny says. He tells this story he tells, I'm sorry. In one of the peri- uh, periodic times when they were trying to eradicate religious belief in the Soviet Union, the Communist Party sent KGB uh, officers or agents into the churches on a Sunday morning. And on this one particular Sunday, this one agent was basically struck by the deep devotion of this elderly woman who was kissing the feet of a life-size carving of Jesus on a cross. And he said, babushka, which means grandmother. He said, are are you also prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved general secretary of our great communist party? And she replied, why, of course, of course, but only if you crucify him first. No other God, no other God dies for his creation. No, no other idol, I should say, or or false God dies for his creation. No other God has wounds where he bore the, the death of his creation. Isaiah says of the servant, he was pierced and scourged for us. And Jesus meets this, listen, Jesus fulfills this in a really specific way. He was scourged, he was scourged with a cat of nine tails, with a, with a whip, with nine, with nine, what do you call them, strips on it, I guess, right? He was whipped with that. He was pierced by the nails that held him on the cross. He bore in himself the punishment for our, what does he say again? He born himself. Uh, he was pierced for my transgressions, a word for sin. He was crushed for my iniquities, a word for my sin. He was chastised, he was chastised, excuse me, for my well-being. And that was by his scourging and his, and his piercing. So he suffered my pain, he bore my pain, he suffered my punishment, he bore my punishment, and he suffered in my place. That's the third one, he suffered in my place, verse six. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to, our, to his own way or her own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And again, note the all at the beginning, at the end, in the middle. 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. It doesn't say all. It says each of us. That could be all. All have turned to their own ways, right? But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. There is none, none of us who hasn't failed the Lord. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet God has caused the iniquity, my iniquity, my sin to fall on the servant. And Jesus is that servant. Jesus is that servant. Our sin was on him. Jesus, Jesus died in my place. He suffered for me. God has every right to hold me accountable for my own sin, causing the iniquity, my own iniquity to be on me, to fall on me, right? He has every right to do that. My iniquity falls on me. The wages of my iniquity, the Bible says, is death. But God caused the iniquity of us all to be placed on Jesus. And Jesus substituted himself. He substituted himself for us. God's servant would suffer. Then God's servant would be silent, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. Here's what that means, and don't miss it. The servant wouldn't beg for his life. The servant wouldn't plead for his life. The servant wouldn't appeal for his life. He would not open his mouth, Isaiah said. All the gospel records record. But Jesus kept silent, Matthew 26. He did not answer, Matthew 27. But he kept silent and did not answer, Mark 14. But Jesus made no further answer, Mark 15. But he answered him nothing, Luke 23. But Jesus gave no answer, John 19. And you remember what they said to Jesus? Remember what Pilate said to Jesus? Why don't you speak? Don't you know I have your life in my hands? I can kill you if I want. Why don't you speak? And he says, remember he said, you have no power over me except what God has granted you. But he would not open his mouth, just like Isaiah predicted. God's servant would be unjustly killed, verse 8. He was taken away because of the oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. The servant would be oppressed, falsely accused, wrongly judged. The servant would die, be cut off from the land of the living. The trials of Jesus were a sham. There was no justice. He was oppressed. And then he was killed. He was cut off from life. He died. And it was all for you and me. He did it because of our rebellion, at least according to Isaiah. God's servant would die alongside the wicked, verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with the rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. People might have wondered, how in the world can that be true? His grave is assigned amongst the wicked and he dies with a rich man at his side. How can all that be true? Uh, Well, it says here, the servant was just and righteous. No deceit was found in his mouth. The, The servant was a righteous man and yet he was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was assigned to be buried with the wicked thieves on the cross who were being killed for, uh, as a punishment for their wrongdoing. Again, Jesus fits that prophecy perfectly. He died alongside uh, the wicked and he was supposed to be buried alongside of them. I mean, I don't know this is true, but I've always heard it that the thieves and all were, were, were buried or thrown into the valley of Hinnon uh, into a common grave. I, I saw a show on Jesus' life recently, that's how they pictured it, that all the, the dead thieves and all were just thrown into a common grave in the Valley of Hinnon. 
Um, but anyway, however how, how they were going to be dying, however they were going to be buried, he was going to be assigned with the wicked. And yet he wasn't, because in his death, Joseph of Arimathea retrieved his body, and he was buried in Joseph's tomb. Jesus fulfills that prediction perfectly. God's servant would be an offering for sin, verse 10. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, and when you, when God makes him a guilt offering, and we'll continue that in just a moment, God makes him a guilt offering. In the book of Leviticus, it opens with a description of five different kinds of Old Testament uh, offerings in worship, right? There was the offering of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. Three of these relate to sin in particular. The servant would be a guilt offering, okay? God, God made, um, I can't read my own writing. Uh, anyway, he was a guilt offering. The guilt offering of Leviticus 5, 14 uh, and following focus on the aspects of sin, sin's effects and the need for repayment. The offering is, is sometimes referred to as the reparation offering because it highlights the need for payment when wrong has been done. Forgiveness was dependent upon the worshiper making amends and the sacrificial animal was, used, was viewed as restitution. The idea is that it's not just enough to be forgiven, we have to make things right. And so that was what the point of a guilt offering was. Jesus was our guilt offering, our restitution, our compensation for the sin we've committed. So in 1 John, in the New Testament, it writes of Jesus, chapter 4, verse 10, love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be, listen, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus was our guilt offering, our atoning offering. God's servant would rise from the dead. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. I'm in verse 10. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. The servant will... I'm sorry, I want to make sure. Did, did I make it clear that he would be unjustly killed earlier? I don't remember making that statement. But he, it says he's going to be unjustly killed, cut from the land of the living. I don't know if I made that really clear. So now it's talking about how he, he's been killed, right? Unjustly killed. But now it says the servant would rise from the dead. Because after he'd been made a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. And after his anguish, he will see the light and be satisfied. Here's what that's saying. The servant will make a sacrifice of his life, a sin offering, a peace offering, a guilt offering, and then he would live again. God would prolong his days. He would see his seed. After his anguish in his death, he will see the light and be pleased. Paul says Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He's the first one to rise from the dead. And he said, the rest of us, we will rise from the dead when he returns, just like he did. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3 says, the Messiah died for our, chapter 15, verse 3 says, the Messiah died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Peter, then to the 12, and then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he has appeared to me. And we are his seed, everyone. 
We are, the, we are Jesus' seed. We, we live again. We are born again. We belong to Jesus because, and he has seen us because we, we are the outgrowth of him making the covenant with God through his own life. So, so and he is satisfied and he is pleased with what he's seen. And then finally, if you're keeping up with the notes, you know it's finally. God's servant will justify us uh, for uh, his, his kingdom to come. By his knowledge, I'm at verse 11, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels and yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. The word justify means uh, to prove someone is right, true, or correct. So if I'm accused of something and and then later justified, then I've been declared right. I've been declared I wasn't guilty of that thing that they said about me or whatever. So I've been justified. I've been proven to be right. In biblical terms, when God declares us justified, he's saying we're morally right. We're morally acceptable, excellent, or virtuous. And, And so by his knowledge and his righteousness... So that's what it says. See it? By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. Jesus in his righteousness dies for the unrighteous. He dies for me and he dies for you. And by his death, he justifies the morally unrighteous, which would be me, by carrying in himself my sin and my iniquity. And he would do that, it says in the text, willingly submitting to death, willingly to be counted among the rebels, the sinners. He bore the sins of rebels and he interceded for the rebels. And all of us have been or will be a rebel at some point in our life. According to the scriptures anyway, unless we die as a child, right? We're, we're all gonna become sinners. All of us will be sinners. And all of us will be, we, we will all be rebels and he will need to intercede for us. And God will give to the servant, to Jesus, the many who come to him in faith. He's seen his offspring. He's seen us because he's risen from the dead and he's seen all those who put their faith in him, those who are the offspring of Abraham by faith. So here are the five conclusions that I want to draw and I'm just gonna state them. But here are the five conclusions that I think Isaiah, I'm gonna gonna kind of distill all of this that I said, all that Isaiah says into five deductions. Here they are. Here's the first one. God's servant, and we could make it more, God's servant would suffer. And Jesus suffered for us. God's servant would die. And Jesus died for us. God's servant would suffer and die for others. Jesus suffered and died for us. God's servant would rise from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. And my final distillation down of what Isaiah is writing is this. God's servant would be given a kingdom, a kingdom of the many who would be justified. Jesus by his death justifies the many and his kingdom and his is the kingdom forever and ever. Here's one of my favorite passages of scripture from the Old Testament, Daniel chapter seven. And suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven 
He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. Let me interject something here. I personally believe this is Daniel seeing what happened when Jesus ascended back to heaven. That's just my thought. But here's what he said. He said, he approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Yeah, that's a great place for an amen right there. The revelation begins with this truth. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed king, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and forever. Amen. As a result of what the servant is doing or did and is doing, We will forever, ever, ever be a part of his kingdom. Don't doubt. Don't lose your faith. Don't trip. You're part of an everlasting kingdom. And though we do not see it, we know, we know by faith Jesus is king and we'll be a part of his kingdom forever. And so this morning, I mean, I know, I know I'm preaching to the kingdom. I realize that. But, but maybe you just happen to be sitting in here today and, and you're not in the kingdom. You're not part of the kingdom. Man, I just feel like I have to invite you. I have to say to you, give your heart and life by faith to the servant. Give your life and heart by faith to the servant who is Jesus, who by his righteous life and by his righteous death carried our sins so that we are justified before God. And is there anyone here this morning, anyone here this morning who sees the servant and loves the servant and wants to follow the servant and that's not been where you are? Then this is the moment. This is the time. This is the place. Now is the moment. Follow the servant. Is there anyone here this morning? If that's you, then Yeah, if that's you. Anyone value? Can you see the value in the servant? Isaiah said they wouldn't see the value in the servant. They would reject him, despise him. I know you're here. Man, let's bow our heads. This is your your opportunity. And, and, and there's so much, there's so much I want God to do in our hearts this morning. I prayed that God would, maybe I already prayed it even at the beginning of this, of this talk, that, that God would just by his spirit just cause us to love Jesus all the more and desire him all the more and want to follow him more clearly and not sin against him. That he would do a work in our hearts to change us. But I, but I just, I ask, man, are you here today and and. It's your, it's, this is your time to say, yep, I'm going to enter the kingdom because you're worthy, not because you're special, but because God loves you and the servant died for you. Would you be willing to put your faith in, in Jesus, the servant, and follow him? Then right now, in this moment, tell him so. Tell him so. What's holding you back? What's keeping you? Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to pastorjimmy at baconscastle.com. 
Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.